welcome back to the Earn It Podcast. Welcome back to the Internet Podcast. I'm your host, Austin Jesse, and this week we have the first in a two-part interview series with Mr. Patrick Birch. Mr. Birch flew helicopters in the United States Navy for a number of years, both in the Vietnam War and later in the Gulf War. And let's just say that uh, our interview went a little long, so I've decided to split it into two parts, and we're going to air the first part this week. Mr. Patrick Birch, who flew um, helicopters in the United States Navy for a number of years. Mr. Birch, thank you for being here. Oh, it's good to be here. So why don't you give us, um, you know, tell us who you are, where you grew up, where you went to school, kind of okay. a, the 30,000 30, foot overview of what you did in the Navy. <laughs> okay. Well, I was, uh, I was actually born in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, but I grew up in uh, the Central Valley of California in a little farm community and uh, called Manteca. And uh, of course, went uh, graduated from high school there. I went to San Jose State College my first year. And uh, then uh, while I was there, I met a young man who had uh, been working for the Forest Service or uh, like I did. He was in a Forest Service curriculum and I had uh, for something he was applying for. It was called um, uh, smoke jumpers, where uh, you uh, parachuted into um, remote, uh, inaccessible areas of the forest to put out small fires. So I got accepted to that, and uh, so I, I lived up in uh, McCall, Idaho for the summer, and then went back and got another year year of uh, college at a junior college in, in Stockton, California. Went back for another summer um, in uh, 1962. Uh, of jumping, 1963 of jumping, and went to Boise Junior College for another year of college, just trying to chip away at college because I couldn't afford San Jose State anymore. And uh, then after that, uh, I walked in, didn't know what I was going to do with my future life. So I uh, walked in, I have to walk into the student union at Boise Junior College, which is now Boise State. And there was a Navy recruiter there recruiting for the NAVCAD programs, Naval Aviation Cadet Program. And that program uh, allowed you with just two years of college, if you could pass a few tests, uh, you could actually get a uh, uh, appointment to the uh, Naval Aviation Training Command in Pensacola. So that's the route I took. So uh, after Pensacola, um, well, in Pensacola, um, we did about 260 hours of fixed wing flying, which was all of the uh, things you might imagine familiarization, um, acrobatics. Uh, unusual attitudes, formation flying, carrier quals. We, we actually uh, crawled on the uh, USS Lexington, and uh, we I felt kind of like a t World War II pilot because we didn't use the catapult. We just launched uh, straight off the deck. They kept telling us that the aircraft stalled at 87 knots, and then they took us up to altitude before we uh, uh, trained for our carrier quals and just pulled, buried up the aircraft, flaps down, gear down, pulled back the throttle until it was 55 knots and was still flying, although it felt like you were on top of a bowling ball. 
He said, that's that's what you're going to experience as you go off the end of the carrier. And that was exactly right. So you felt like you weren't at flying speed. You just held what you had and just you slowly gained gained speed as you went off. So uh, that ended the fixed wing portion of my training. And then uh, I had two choices. I didn't hit my flight grades were good enough for jets. So I had two choices. I had multi-engine or, or helicopter. And uh, I didn't like the, uh, the multi-engine aircraft or the mission. It was, seemed boring to me. So I said, I really want to, or you really want to fly an aircraft that I have to fly all the time. And uh, helicopters was the answer to that. And uh, so I trained in uh, TH-13, which was the primary trainer. It's a little bubble top, uh, had a balsa wood uh, rotor blade, had uh, 240 and at uh, top speed of about 70 knots. So we used to we used to fly from the main field out to outlying fields to do our practice. And usually you'd see a Volkswagen on the highway. We we'd get there before we would. So <laughs> it was an interesting aircraft, and it was very maneuverable. But that's what we started out at. And so. Can you tell me a little bit about what was the train progression from going to that, you know, the little, kind of like the helicopter that was in MASH, the TV program, if anybody saw that. Yeah. Um, what was the progression like? Well, helicopters are, in many respects, backwards from fixed. So it was a, it was a, a interesting transition because all of a sudden, uh, after having all these flight hours and uh, qualifying on an aircraft carrier, I go to this little helicopter and I can't master the thing. I can't just take it up and hover it. And uh, so it was kind of humbling. But uh, because of the rotor, suddenly you have a rotating wing, there's a lot of things that have to be compensated for aerodynamically. And uh, so uh, it behaves a lot differently than, than a fixed wing, except when you're, when you're straight level flight at altitude, it's pretty much the same as a fixed wing. As soon as you approach a hover, things change rather drastically. Because you, uh, as you slow down and increase power, first of all, the, the, the coordination of the power, uh, because of reciprocating the engine, was you, it was much like a motorcycle handle, uh, where you, uh, you, have, you increase your power on the handle as you pull up the collective, the collective pitch, whatever. Uh, increases your power and and your uh, as you report uh, approach a hover. Uh, in fact, some uh, we had some motorcycle guys that uh, had a background in motorcycle. Well, the motorcycle uh, throttle you turn it towards you to uh, increase the power. Well, helicopter is just the opposite. You turn it away from you, and they actually turned off the engine when they didn't expect to. We didn't want to. So made life interesting, but uh, everything is fine as you approach the hover. But in order to stay in a hover, you have all five controls. It's a collective, throttle, stick, and rudders, and you have to coordinate those with very small movements. And initially, after fixed wing, your movements for a stick and rudders are kind of kind of large. So as you uh, as you approach a uh, approach a hover, all those movements have to be very tiny, very small in order to maintain uh, a hover. Anytime you see a helicopter hovering and perfectly still, the pilot is moving all the controls all the time. He's there, never stops. And they're all very tiny movements. And getting, getting used to going from rather large movements to small movements was uh, 
was a challenge. But uh, um, the helicopter aerodynamics, uh, as soon as you start turning a wing, you have to compensate for a lot of things. Uh, first of all, uh, you have an any torque device in the back called the tail rotor, except for tandem rotor helicopters, it's different. But uh, so you have a, you have constantly have to maintain that with your rotors. And uh, as you increase power, of course, the torque increases and you have to offset it. Also, as you, uh, a fixed wing will stall, as you, I'm sure you're aware, at, at slow air, forward airspeed. A helicopter stalls at fast forward airspeed. And the reason for that is uh, you have a forward coming blade with a, a very low angle of attack and a, and a rearward going blade with a very high angle of attack. So the blade on that's it's going rearward is, wants to stall. And the one coming forward wants to create more lift. So the way they compensate for that, call, it's called flapping. The, the, the rotor system can, is, uh, moves in three directions. It, uh, it flaps up and down. It uh, increases and decreases lift. So, uh, and, then, and it leads and lags. Now the lead lag in a, in a two rotor helicopter is not very noticeable because there's only opposing rotors. But the more blades you add, the more lead and lag there is to the blades to compensate. So <clears throat> what happens as the forward coming blade uh, de decreases its angle of attack and increases the lift, the rear uh, going blade uh, gets uh, closer and closer to stall because it's increasing its angle of attack flapping that blade, the rear going uh, blade flaps down, the forward coming blade flaps up. That decreases the angle of attack on the forward coming blade and increases the angle of attack on the rear going. And that's how they compensate for the, for the difference in the lift as the as uh, rotor goes around. And uh, we uh, helicopter, and that's the reason that helicopter will, will stall at fast forward speed. At some point, there's a speed at which you can't compensate that difference anymore. And so the, the river going blade stalls and the helicopter will turn to the left and upside down when it stalls. So um, when you're <clears throat> in a helicopter, it's a low air, uh, a low altitude aircraft that doesn't do well at high altitudes because uh, of that uh, phenomena. And also, as you for every one thousand feet that you increase your altitude, you have to decrease your airspeed three knots huh. to prevent it from stalling. So basically, you can you can have a uh, uh, towards sea level or a couple hundred feet, you can have a speed of a, a max speed of uh, 140 knots and then go up to altitude and be restricted to like 70 or 80 knots. And um, so that's, uh, that's kind of some of the aerodynamics that uh, are involved with that. Also, they have what they call a ground cushion for helicopters. 
and it's uh, a ground cushion is as high as one third of the diameter of the blade. Uh, so if you have a six, uh, 60 foot uh, blade, 20 feet, up to 20 feet, you got, you're in a ground cushion, which is the uh, downward flow of the air from the rotors actually causes a cushion that uh, helps helps you to uh, uh, maintain um, a flight at low to the ground at, at a heavy weight. So if you're overloaded, and you probably saw a lot of Vietnam helicopters, uh, for instance, <clears throat> taking off with a lot of troops and armament and stuff, they'll stay low to the ground until they get up to a certain speed before they rise up. Well, they're on that ground cushion, and the ground cushion is helping them uh, maintain a hover until they can get into what we call translational lift at about 20 knots. Uh, translational lift is where <clears throat> instead of all of the power being used to um, maintain a hover, uh, that power is transferred um, where the actual forward speed of the a helicopter is helping it, uh, it uh, reduce, reduce, reduce the power. So once you get a translational lift, even in the heavier load, you can actually uh, fly out of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, some of the Huey guys at the Air Museum, most of them are Vietnam vets, and they talk about taking off, you know, overloaded with either mm -hmm. cargo or troops, and they fly along, you know, they go along the runway for a couple of, you know, before they can develop that transitional lift and get up and away. Yeah, and you can actually feel transitional lift. It's a little shudder as you go through it. And for now, skid configured helicopters, of course, they do it from a hover, but you can you can actually get a transitional lift with wheel configured helicopters just by rolling down the runway like an aircraft. Mm -hmm. So what were the TH-13 and the TH-57 like performance-wise in flying? Well, the TH-13 was, uh, it was slow. It was a forgiving aircraft. Uh, <laughs> I once, uh, I once uh, saw a friend of mine do a three-point landing in a, in a TH-13 when he was coming down. You, when you come down to, we used to do uh, 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 skid-on landings, actually on a grass field. And he was coming down and he got his nose a little high and he got two skids and a tail rotor. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it uh, of course you learn how to do uh, hovers, uh, move maneuvers where you, you, uh, you'll have a square painted on the ground and you actually go around the square with your nose so you can practice these different uh, maneuvers from a hover. Then there's auto rotations where you uh, can cut the power uh, completely and uh, as, as soon as you put the collector to the bottom, your, your rotor system goes into negative uh, angle of attack. And what that does, it, it acts like a fan. Like air coming up through the rotor system keeps it turning. So as you get to the ground, that air, that, that uh, rotation uh, builds up and you use your collective to keep it from overspeeding. And as you approach the ground, you use that rotor inertia and pull up on your collective to cushion your landing. So, uh, uh, and the other thing about one of the big things about fixed wing is the difference between fixed wing and helicopters is that 
fixed wing uh, will glide pretty substantially. You can get what every thousand feet you can get maybe what five ten miles or something like that. Yeah. The helicopter drops like a rock, so you get one quarter mile for every thousand feet in a helicopter. So you pretty much wherever you are, and you lose an engine, you're coming pretty much straight down to whatever's below you which uh, doesn't give you much time to pick out a place to land like <laughs> fixed me. <laughs> but, but if you do it right, it doesn't matter what's below you. We actually had in the training command, they had a picture of an H-34 sitting in the top of a tree. He had lost <laughs> the engine, but he did a, he just did a road, he auto rotated to the top of the tree and pulled in his power. <laughs> That's <laughs> that yeah. had to be a pretty strong tree to hold him up, though. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was actually a group of trees. Crazy. Uh, so then, what was it like landing on a carrier with a helicopter as opposed to landing with an airplane? Was it easier or harder? It's a whole lot easier. A whole lot easier because basically you just you have a spot, you come to that spot and hover and come straight down. Uh, an aircraft. Uh, uh, we had what we called uh, a uh, landing system that was, uh, we call it the meatball. What it was is you have a, a group of uh, data lights that are green, and in the middle of the data lights is a screen that has, uh, it shows up as a yellow ball. What you try to do is keep that yellow ball lined up with the green da uh, data lights as you come down. We used to say that a helicopter fixed wing, uh, fixed wing uh, air, aircraft carrier landing was a, a controlled crash uh -huh. because you're coming down and, and you get the cut signal and you're still 10 feet off the ground. So you just, you smack down. <laughs> and that's why they make the uh, landing gear on aircraft carrier uh, aircraft uh, much stronger. Uh -huh. We actually have um, an XP3 pilot, one of our B25 pilots, mm. and the way he lands is just, yeah. you know, no. Yeah, well, no. that's, you know, there are uh, a Navy, less a, a Navy um, landing pattern is different than like an Air Force landing pattern. Air Force do a big square landing pattern into the long runway. Mm -hmm. Well, Navy, we do an aircraft carrier pattern, which is a racetrack pattern. It's very close. It's very tight. And uh, it's, it's a whole lot different than, than a lot of uh, normal landing patterns. And as far as uh, the H-57, well, that was a triple shaft helicopter, uh, turbo shaft engine. So it had a lot more power, a lot more speed. The T-50, uh, the H-57, which is the primary, was the primary trainer in the, in the training command for years, I think it still is. Um, you can, it was ahead about 130 knot forward speed. And uh, it, it had a little engine that you, it, it, you could probably cradle in your arms. But uh, one of the big things with helicopters was when they went to the triple shaft engines, uh, what, what used to restrict helicopters a lot from with their weight was the, the, the weight of the engine was so much it took away your uh, what you could carry at net weight mm -hmm. and, and um, where a turbo shaft engine uh, is much lighter and much more efficient 
this little this little end, turboshaft engine you can cradle in your arms actually produce 700 shaft horsepower. And um, so it was it was fast, it was smooth. Um, it was, uh, I think, uh, user friendly, you might say. But uh, it's a good little helicopter. It had one of the best fuel controls that I've ever ever seen. Uh, there have been instances uh, in turbo shaft engines where the fuel control got clogged up with fuel and basically shut down the engine. And this was a little uh, British Allison engine and uh, really a, a good performing little engine. And, and suddenly <clears throat> when you go to a turbo shaft engine, uh, you don't have to worry about coordinating the throttle anymore because what a turbo shaft engine, you run it at 100% all the time and uh, you fly torque. You have a torque gauge and your own limitation is torque. And the, the, reason, the, the reason for that torque gauge is that uh, you, you have to limit the amount of torque you can put on a transmission, transmission uh-huh. in a helicopter. And if you over torque, helicopter you overspeed the transmission and that causes great problems so what was it like kind of getting to the fleet and how did you get assigned to the plane guard mission well uh i was in a squadron that uh, supplied all the aircraft carriers uh, on the atlantic coast with search and rescue aircraft what we did is we went out in three plane detachments from the main squadron. Our main squadron would have like 30 aircraft. And then we'd go out in three plane detachments uh, with uh, six pilots and um, three aircraft. And uh, then uh, whatever carrier we were attached to, I was attached to the uh, Franklin Roosevelt. And uh, then we'd deploy and we uh, would um, provide all the rescue operations and plane guard operations. Now, plane guard, what that meant was every time before launch, we would always launch first and we'd always uh, come aboard last. And what happened, uh, so that we wanted to be airborne in this race attack pa- uh, pattern on the starboard side of the carrier at about uh, 200 feet. <clears throat> and uh, just stay there in that racetrack pattern while they were launching and recovering. So if any, any aircraft in the water had a mishap, uh, we were uh, airborne, ready to go pick them up. So how would you conduct a rescue? Did you have a hoist or what, what yeah, would be the plan a, for that? We had a hoist. It was all, it's always on the starboard side. So who's ever in the right seat of the helicopter always makes the rescue. And, uh, I remember uh, my first rescue was uh, rather exciting, and, and I think in your questionnaire you asked what was what was one of the was one of the most uh, <laughs> uh, terrifying things or whatever about uh, about uh, it's, uh, what is the most re- uh, uh, memorable experience. Well. Mm-hmm. Here I was, I was a boot ensign. I was the youngest guy. I happened to be in the right seat, so in any rescues, I'd be making them. We're coming around towards the ship in a right-hand turn, and there's an F4 on a catapult. He's got a uh, 500-gallon fuel uh, tank uh, on the center line. 
he launches, the tank falls off, the heat from the catapult catches the uh, tank on fire, and it looks like they, uh, somebody laid a, a napalm bomb down the starboard catapult. Ooh. Catches, <clears throat> it catches the rear end of the uh, F-4 on fire, but it was just external fuel. So as he increased his airspeed, that his flames, uh, that those flames went out and he was able to come back land. Meanwhile, <clears throat> they have what they call a shuttle runner. He's a young sailor up forward on the bow. And when they launch an aircraft, he would put this cover over the uh, shuttle that, uh, that launches the aircraft so they could pull it back without it being obstructed. Well, he's up forward, he catches fire. So here I am, I'm turning into the in, inboard to the, to the aircraft carrier, this big ball of fire. And then I see this little figure who's on fire jumping over the side. It's the smartest thing he could have done. Uh -huh. 70 foot jump, but it put the fire out and the guy survived. He had some pretty good burns. But it just so happened that as he was jumping over the side, we were actually in position just to start a descent to rescue him. So what we do is you just do a, a slow descent, come to a hover about 30 feet, lower the hoist. And uh, if, if the person we're picking up is, um, is impaired, uh, we have uh, trained, the crewmen are trained rescue swimmers. So we lower one of those guys down into the water and either come up with the uh, victim or they get him in the, in, the, uh, in the sling so that he can't come up. If he's unconscious or something like that, they'll, they'll actually buckle themselves to the survivor and they both come up on the, on the, uh, on the uh, hoist at the same time. So what was the SH-2 like in terms of performance and handling, maybe compared to some of the training helicopters up to that point? Uh, the S-2 was very fast, very maneuverable. Um, we used to say that the H-2 is the sports car and the H-3 was the Cadillac. Because that's kind of, uh, the H-3, you did everything kind of slow and smoothly. The, the, uh, the H-2, uh, the H-3, slow and smoothly, the H-2, uh, you could you could wrestle that around the sky and it would just perform beautifully and uh, you could do all kinds of 90 degree turns and everything in that thing and you could pull the nose up 90 degrees um it was a very unique aircraft because it was the only helicopter that i've ever flown that you can fly without hydraulics all helicopters have redundant hydraulic systems because if you lose your hydraulics to your uh, uh, rotor head and flight controls, that there's 3,000 pounds of pressure that you won't be able to overcome. Uh, as you can imagine, trying to weight lift 3,000. <laughs> <laughs> so, it's not uh, gonna work. But this helicopter could fly with a hydro hydraulics. And the reason it could is because uh, there's a little, uh, almost like a trim tab flap that uh, is uh, uh, about two thirds of the way out on the, uh, on the rotor. And so you could actually, if you lose hydraulics, you can actually use a trim uh, button on the stick to actually land the aircraft, even though you don't have hydraulics. 
And uh, <clears throat> that offered uh, also more stability in flight because you could actually trim it up and, uh, and have uh, very light pressure on a stick while you're flying. And most helicopters, you couldn't trim them up like that. And it was very fatiguing because you're flying all the time and uh, you never can really release all that stick pressure. So uh, this was a real uh, a, a, a unique innovation on that particular aircraft. And it was a turbo shaft. It uh, had uh, 1,200 shaft horsepower, had four blades, um, and uh, had uh, room for uh, two crewmen and probably three other passengers or uh, rescuees or whatever it happened to be. Mm -hmm. The limiting factor uh, on most helicopters is fuel. Since uh, you, we don't have wings that carry the fuel like a fixed wing aircraft. So consequently, um, all your fuel was internal. And occasionally we could, we had um, tanks mounted on the side that we could fill too, but uh, it still didn't uh, improve your your uh, range that much. We usually only had about a 200 mile range.